The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 26. Uh, This part of Exodus is the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which is, of course, Israel's place of worship of Jehovah God. And from chapter 25 down through the end of the book, there are details of the construction and uh, of this worship center that was that was very much different from the temples of idols where heathens worshipped. Israel might even, uh, you might say, be a little bit embarrassed to compare their worship center to the massive buildings that heathens built. But I can assure you that it wasn't the size of the worship center that mattered. It was the size of the God that they worshipped. And it was the reality of the God that they worshipped. One of the things we really love, we, we really like nice buildings. We like to have nice church buildings. And I've told you many times, I, I like the traditional church settings. But we like nice church buildings, but we need to be reminded, as the Apostle Paul said uh, in the book of Acts, that our God does not dwell in temples that are made with hands. There is no way that you can measure the size of our God. The heathens might measure their gods by the massive ornate temples that they built, but folks, our God can't be measured. So Israel's place of worship was much different. Uh, at this stage in their history, they needed a transportable worship center. It was a tent that was packed up and moved as they wandered throughout the wilderness for 40 years. And as we'll see momentarily, it, it wasn't like setting up and taking down uh, or folding up a camping tent. Though it wasn't huge, it was extremely heavy. It had many parts to it and even took an entire tribe of Israel to move the tabernacle from one place to another. Now this afternoon in our study, we continue our examination of the building. Uh, We've yet to enter the tabernacle structure itself, but rather we've studied the surroundings of it. We've looked at the courtyard, the linen fence that surrounds the courtyard, the gate that goes through that fence, and we've talked about the brazen altar that's there in the courtyard, the brazen laver that's there. These are all outside before you enter. And then in the last message, we talked about the foundation of this beautiful tent structure, and we learned that it had a firm foundation that was built on approximately five tons of pure silver. And this was silver that was taken from the redemption money that was paid by the male Israelites, and that represented the redemption price that was paid in blood by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the foundation of the tabernacle then and the strength of it was not concrete that's poured into the ground like we have today. That's not the foundation. Although concrete's very durable, you just don't pick up concrete and move it around. Uh, But this tabernacle, it, it had a very strong foundation. It had to be moved, yet a foundation had to be strong. And the strength of it was that heavy silver. And without the silver, without the foundation of it, the heavy boards that sit on top of it would cause the tabernacle to sink and eventually to fall. So without the silver, the tabernacle can't stand. And likewise, we we should understand that our salvation 
rests in and is laid upon the foundation that was paid by Christ alone. The Apostle Paul wrote, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there isn't any other foundation that can support the massive weight of what God did in saving us from our sins. This is too high above us, too much for us even to imagine what Christ had to do to atone for our souls. But here in the tabernacle, we get just a, just a glimpse of that, a picture of that, with the silver in the redemption money. So the foundation of the tabernacle shows that we don't have any hope without Christ's payment for sin. And his payment is that undergirding of the entire relationship that we have with God. Without that, the relationship is sunk before it ever begins. We can't come to Christ. We can't come to God, rather, without being underpinned by redemption in Christ. Well, this afternoon, we want to pass on from the foundation to discuss the walls that stand on this foundation. Now, the walls, as the foundation and all other parts of the tabernacle, present to us compelling pictures of Christ. And the viewpoint that we have of Christ this evening in the tabernacle is Christ who is the God-man. And that's represented in the bars and uh, the uh, boards and the bars of the framework of this structure. And I was just thinking as I was talking there about the song we, we sang just a moment ago. I'll get into this in just a minute as we talk about this. But that song we sang face to face at the very beginning... Uh, we see Christ face to face and we long to see him face to face because he is the God-man. He, he is the invisible God who has become incarnate and forever he will be that way. So we're going to recognize Christ as the God-man. Now our text is Exodus 26 verses 15 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, we'll read these verses this evening. Starting verse 15, Exodus 26. And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Two tenons shall there be in one board, set in order, one against another. Thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, Two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there are forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And for the sides of the tabernacle westward, thou shalt make six boards. And two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in the two sides, and they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head of it unto one ring. Thus shall it be for them both. They shall be for the two corners. And they shall be eight boards and their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And thou shalt make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the two sides westward. And the middle bar in the midst of the boards shall reach from end to end. And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for places for the bars, and thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. 
I want to remind you once again of the size of the tabernacle. It's 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and you do the math on that and you'll come up with 675 square feet, which is not much bigger, if at all, of a one-bedroom apartment. 675 square feet. So you can see, this is a structure that didn't compare to heathen temples. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament and you read about the temple of Dagon that Samson destroyed, uh, you'll find there that it held about 3,000 people. That would be twice, about twice the capacity of the Luther Burbank Center. So it held 3,000 people, but this tent of the congregation of Israel uh, has nobody that goes on the inside except the priest. And you couldn't have many more on the inside because they would stumble over each other with the articles of furniture there and there's not much room there. So this is not a place, as we've discussed many times, for Israel to come into to, to gather there and to worship, but everything that takes place on the inside is done by the priest. Now, in our text, we learn that the north and the south walls were made up of 20 boards, each of them standing 15 feet tall, 27 inches wide, and the west wall was made up of, of six boards, and each of these boards that go around the tabernacle are nine inches thick. They're made of wood, and that wood is overlaid with pure gold. On the bottom of each board... There are two protrusions that are called tenons, and these fit down into the silver sockets of the foundation and hold them in place. And then around the entire framework of the tabernacle, there is a center bar that acted as a band that provided stability to the structure and held those boards in place. And there were also four short boards on each side placed above and below the center bar, and those bars are also wood that are covered in gold. And so the, the framework of these solid boards uh, must have weighed just thousands of pounds. The amount of gold that was used in them was staggering. Imagine if you had to, to lift a board that is 15 feet long, 27 inches wide, 9 inches thick, and that board is covered in pure gold. Well, you can see what a daunting task that it was to move this structure around. And if you want to get an idea what one of these boards was like, uh, a pretty good idea would be to go into our conference room and look at the beam that Matt and his friends uh, put up there. You know, we took down the, the load-bearing wall that was in that room, and so we had to have a beam made. And that would give you some idea of what one of these boards would be like, even though that beam that's in there is not as large as these boards of the tabernacle. But it kind of gives you an idea of the weight of that structure and how hard it must have been to move those things around. So this is a beam, that beam over there rather, is not a beam that's covered in gold. I wish we could have done that. Uh, I surely do. Ours isn't covered with gold. Th these were. And we, we understand from our previous studies that the gold in the tabernacle stands for the deity of Christ. And the wood in the tabernacle stands for his humanity. And so the bars and the boards give us a picture of Jesus Christ who is both God and man. That he is man who is clothed in divinity. Now remember that Jesus proved this at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when just for a moment his humanity was peeled back and the brightness of his divinity was beaming as he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with those apostles that were there. Now my purpose in, in talking about the tabernacle was not just to explain building materials that were there, 
uh, and not just merely state, oh, that is a picture of Christ, but we also want to talk about why these distinct attributes of Christ are, are so very necessary. So this afternoon, I'd like to, to talk to you uh, about Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who is represented in the boards and the bars of the tabernacle. Well, describing it is a lot better, I think, if we have a picture to visualize. Uh, what, what do you imagine by reading the scriptures? I mean, what would you have in your mind's eye about what the tabernacle must have looked like? I think by following these directions that we have here, it'd be quite difficult for us to decipher. But embedded into my mind for now uh, more than 60 years are these slides that we show you about the tabernacle. I've, I've, I've looked at these since I was a child, and so I can't read these scriptures without this visualization in my mind that that is exactly what the tabernacle must have looked like. Uh, to me, that is the tabernacle. Now, the picture we want to show you now, uh, we've seen before. This is the framework of the golden boards that are sitting on the sockets of silver. And you can see the bars that I referenced a moment ago. You see the bars running along the side. You see a top bar and a bottom bar that you have there. And as usual, I, I think that we need a little bit of a disclaimer here about this picture. Uh, it's mostly accurate Although, I think that there should be a middle bar that runs the full length of this without a break. I mean, that's what we read in verse number 28. But I will not criticize the artist who did this, because uh, I'd like to see what I would have come up with, and you would have come up with, if you just read the scriptures and say, well, I think I'll draw that. Uh, that's a difficult thing. But with that aside, I want you to notice first this evening, as we talk about these boards and bars, that uh, particularly the bars stand for the duration of Christ. The middle bar that runs the full length has something to say about the duration of Christ. It goes from the beginning to the end. That's what verse 28 says. All the way around, from the beginning to the end, there is this long center bar. And who is there among us as Christian people in this room tonight do not understand that Christ is the beginning and the end. Isn't that what the scripture says? He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. In Genesis, the first words in the Bible are in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. So the first chapter of Genesis reveals to us the duration of God, that God is eternal, that God existed before the world began, that God is the first cause, that God dwells outside of time. He is the creator of both the world and of time. And then in the 26th verse of chapter 1 in Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And from that we learn that God is a plurality. God is more than one person. And then later we learn, of course, through the scripture that God is a trinity. And then in other places of the scripture, God refers to himself as I am. He uses present tense because he is in the eternal presence. Present. He is not affected by either time or space. But then we come to the New Testament and there we find another very important text that says in the beginning. And that is in John chapter 1 verse 1. The, the Apostle John begins his gospel account by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word there, of course, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the Bible very clearly declares in this scripture that Jesus is God. That he was in existence as God before the foundation of the world. And in fact, it says that he is the creator. In other places, the Gospel of John, Jesus used that same present tense when he said, I am. In other words, he used the same language that's used in the Old Testament to speak of Jehovah God. And so when I speak of the duration of Christ, I mean that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is equal with God, the one who in fact is God, always exists in the eternal presence. Now, we do understand the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, and so we reject any claim that makes Jesus anything less than eternal God. And so we reject the claims of the Mormons, we reject the Jehovah Witnesses and all the cults that make Jesus anything less than the one and only true God. He is one with the Father, He is one with the Holy Spirit, and he was in that conversation in Genesis 1 when it said, Let us make man in our image. Well, sometimes people ask, Well, what, what was Christ doing? What was Christ doing before the incarnation? In, in, in what capacity did he operate as God? Well, I, I would say first that as the eternal God, before the incarnation, he did this. He was creating the universe. Well, the scripture says in John that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Moses recorded in Genesis 1.1, I quoted it a moment ago, that it was God who made the heavens and the earth. There's no contradiction. There isn't a contradiction because Jesus is God. Paul reiterated the same teaching when he wrote Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus used the same words as Jehovah God used in the Old Testament describing himself. He said in John 8.58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And in other places, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Son of God. And so we can underline it. Jesus is the great I am. Now those were very intentional statements that Jesus made. They were made to show the Jews, and they would recognize exactly what Jesus meant by them, what he claimed, that he claimed to be the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And you remember when they, when they tried to stone him, Jesus asked, well, why are you stoning me? Are you stoning me for the good works that I do? And they said, no, we're not stoning you for the good works that you do. We are stoning you because, or we want to stone you because you are a man and you make yourself God. And so there's one of the few times that they ever told the truth about him, at least they were right in this respect, out of the mouths of babes, so to speak, they spoke the truth. He was man and he was God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the eternally existent God. But what else was he doing before the incarnation? Well, we have also read in our scripture here that he was communing with the Father. He was communing with the Father. This is what he said in John 17. I in them and thou in me, 
that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. John's gospel has been described as the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And this is what he was doing before the world was created. He was communing with the Father. There he experienced the same glory that the Father experienced, the same majesty as the Father. And his prayer in John 17 is that he would return to that glory that he had before the world was created. In verse number 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so you can see that Christ was with the Father. He was in communion with him. He was involved in those eternal deliberations. He was there when the God had determined that there would be a creation and that salvation would come to this earth. And then the scriptures also talk about how he will return to that exalted position that he had before he became incarnate. And I also might add that in those eternal deliberations, this is what we saw the last time, uh, last time we talked about this subject, uh, we spoke about the contract for salvation, the eternal contract that uh, was an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, and that contract was how Christ would die for those that were given to him by the Father. So this is what Christ was doing. This is what, how the Father and the Son are transacting things. They're communing with one another over what would take place in creation and the salvation of man. And then in view of that eternal covenant, because it is an eternal covenant, we find that Christ is still doing something. He's not just, uh, it's just, that's not maybe the word to use. He's not the Christ who died on the cross, arose from the grave, and, oh, okay, well, we won't see him again. He's not doing anything until he comes back. No, he is very active. So what does he do now? Well, thirdly, he continues for our salvation. The scripture says in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. To make intercession for them. Now we discussed a moment ago that continuous long board. Or bar rather. A band that encircles the entire tabernacle. A band that holds the boards together without a break. Well there is a, another symbolism in that. And it represents Jesus who continues forever. To ensure our salvation. So from before the foundation of the world. When the elect were given to Christ. On through his life, through his death for them, through his resurrection from the grave, um, Christ is alive, making sure that none of his elect will ever perish. He is not willing that they should perish. And so because Christ lives, we live. And the picture in the bars is the eternal security that we have in Christ. And when you look at such things, you, you wonder, how do people come to the conclusion that Salvation could be lost. I think anybody who believes that would need to travel back in time 3,500 years and they'd need to pry that center bar from the tabernacle because the type is there. The type is there uh, because the antitype, Jesus Christ, is alive. He's living. He's interceding for us right now. So if you don't believe that he's doing that, then tear that bar off 
The picture is that of one who lives forever. And if that bar is removed, what happens? Well, the tabernacle doesn't stand. It's there to support it. It's there to keep it upright. You take that bar away and it can't stand. And so this is the way it is in our theology that when you start removing parts that are so essential that affect other parts, you're going to have a problem with your salvation. You start taking away these things like the eternal security that we have in Christ and you teach that salvation can be lost, you end up with blasphemy against the Son of God. What you do then is you reject the eternal person of Christ. You reject the Christ who lives for this purpose. And that is to make intercession for the redeemed to ensure that they can never fall. And for sure, without his intercession, that's what we would do. We would fail of the grace of God. We would fall flat on our face as far as salvation is concerned. We can't sustain ourselves. So if Christ is interceding, for what purpose does he intercede except for this? To ensure the preservation of his people. And isn't this what Romans tells us? Does Romans tell us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? And then doesn't it go on in that 8th chapter to list every possibility and then come to the conclusion that we are conquerors and more than conquerors in Jesus Christ? We'll discuss this in our Romans class, but the word that Paul used there is the word Nike. He used the word actually hooper, Nikeo, which means super Nike. We are super conquerors in Jesus Christ. That teaches that Christ can't be defeated and because he can't be defeated, we can't be defeated. Conquerors live because Christ lives. He is the eternal living God. So what does the tabernacle teach in this aspect? It teaches Jesus Christ is eternal God, that he endures forever. Isaiah described him in that very useful chapter that we quote from often. Chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. What's next? The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Hebrews 1, 10 and 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. He endures forever. And might I also add, for your edification, that the duration of Christ is one of the doctrines of grace. We love the doctrines of grace. And I'd love to spend more time on this part of them, and that is the eternal preservation and the perseverance of God's saints. So because God chose us and gave us to Christ, he will not fail to see his redeemed in glory. Why doesn't he fail in that? Because his purpose was that his people would see that glory. Jesus said, because you love me and you love them before the foundation of the world. I want them to see that glory that I had before I came to this earth. Now, secondly, this evening in the bars and the boards, there is seen the deity of Christ. And this, of course, is closely connected to what I've just said. Uh, if Jesus existed as God before the foundation of the world, and if he is the creator, and if he is one with the Father, then he must also be God. He isn't, as the Jehovah Witnesses claim, a God. Now, that passage that we read in 
John 1 is a problematic passage for the Jehovah Witnesses, and they know that. They know that they have a struggle trying to explain that. And that's because they know that the word in the passage refers to Christ. Well, they have a very much different doctrine that we have on the person of Christ. And so they need to alter the scriptures to make that fit in the framework of their theology. And so they change the word, who is Jesus Christ, to a God. And in the New World Translation uh, by the Jehovah Witnesses, a God, the God is a little g. And the truth of it is that Jesus is the God, and this is what the gold of the tabernacle represents. It represents the deity of Jesus Christ. The boards that are overlaid with gold say that he is God. Now, in that, we also come to an understanding of the, somewhat of an understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. The composition of the boards is of two separate materials. It's not wood that is mixed with gold. It's gold and wood. One's not a part of the other and can't be a part of the other. I mean, anyone here knows you can't mix wood and gold. They have different properties. They don't mix. If you could mix wood and gold, you'd have to keep a special eye out on your jewelers. Uh, You might be tempted to mix some wood in with your gold. But you can't do that. They have two separate properties. They don't work together. They can't mix. So the bars, the wood and the gold, teach us that Jesus is both God and man. And that he had two separate, distinct natures. And when man and God came together, there wasn't a new hybrid nature that was produced. Each of the natures in Jesus Christ remains distinct, but not so distinct that Christ would have a dual personality, a split personality. No, he is the God-man. He's unlike any that was before, unlike any that will come after. Now, this doctrine, if you're taking notes, is what we call the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, what is that? Well, it means that Christ has two distinct natures that are joined in one person. He is not two people in one. He is one person that has two distinct natures. And so we just simply say God-man. That distinguishes the two natures. Well, that would raise a question in our minds. Well, if he is both God and man, if he has two natures, then which of those two natures is the most important? Which one is the most prominent? That's a hard question to answer because in one sense, both natures are critical. Both of them are indispensable to the salvation of humans. You can't split Jesus apart and have one nature and not the other and still have salvation. It takes both natures for him to be our savior. But not only does he have two natures, he's always going to be that way. That's what I referenced just a moment ago with the song Face to Face. He's always going to be that way. Since the incarnation, he exists forever as the God-man. And so when we get to heaven, we will relate to Jesus Christ as the God-man. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the way that we'll see Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let's pay attention here for just a moment to this. We get the word hypostasis from the Greek word here for the person, the express image of his person. The word actually there is hypostasis. 
Christ sat down on the right hand of the Almighty on high as the hypostasis, that is, the person, the visible God. And that's the way that Christ will always appear. Now we notice also that gold covered the wood. It's not wood covering the gold. Now this teaches that Jesus was God first, and then he became a man. Now the Mormons teach that Jesus Christ is not God, but that he was created. That he is the ultimate elevated man. And they teach that you can become a God, and you could actually become an elevated man just as Jesus is. And maybe you didn't know this, but they also teach that the God who is in heaven now was once a man. And that he is the succession of other men who were elevated to the status of God. The tabernacle says otherwise. Wood can't become gold. A man can never become God. Jesus was God first, and because he was God first, the gold can add wood to the deity because it has the power of deity behind it. Now, that's a fascinating uh, study. It's really, that part is a study of its own. But the personality of the God-man depends primarily on the divine nature, not vice versa. And that's why Jesus could arise from the grave. If it was the divine nature that depended upon the human nature, then what would have happened at the cross is that God would have been killed. And therefore... Jesus could not have risen from the grave. But don't we know? The scripture says he had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to take it again. And the power that he had to do that came from his deity. That does not come from his humanity. His humanity is cloaked in the deity. It's the wood that's covered in the gold. It can't happen that Jesus could be human first or the human nature could be the most prominent in Christ from this aspect because the human nature is weak. Jesus experienced all the weakness of it. He became tired. He needed sleep. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. He was tempted. And you remember in the temptation, what did he need? He needed God. He needed the Spirit to sustain him. Satan even acknowledged that human weakness. He tempted Jesus, you remember, to leap off of the temple. And Satan said, you can do that. You can... Jump off the temple because the angels will hold you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And what was the indication? Jesus was human. If not for angels, he would jump off the top of the temple and he would die as a human unless the angels prevented the hurt of that fall. But of course, Jesus wouldn't do any of that. Jesus didn't enter into the temptation. He would not sin because he was God. He was tuned into the Father. He was impeccable. Understand that word. He was impeccable. That means he was without sin. He was impeccable and always did the Father's will. So you see then it's the divinity that was in Christ. It's the divinity that brought him back to life in the crucifixion. It brought him out of the tomb. And it was his divinity that always guided his perfect life. Another thing we see with the gold of the boards and the bars, is that gold kept the wood from decay. Wood is subject to the breakdown of the cellular structure. Wood is a living material. As soon as you cut it off the tree, it begins to decay. But the gold is put on top of the wood to prevent the decay in the boards. Now, what's the picture here then? 
Well, it is that the body of Jesus Christ, though it was human, never suffered decay. The scriptures predicted in the Psalms long before the incarnation. In Psalm 16, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, hell in that verse is the word sheol. It means the grave. He would not stay in the grave where the body corrupts. So he was protected from that by the power of his deity. His body would be glorified so that it would never corrupt. The body of Jesus was holy. He wasn't left in the tomb. He came out of the grave without one cell of his body infected by the corruption of death. And that body that came out of the tomb is the same body that will return to this earth one day and will call us home. Job said, Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel said, This same Jesus, the same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. That tells us that the body of Christ is still a part of him. He still has it. He will return in the body, in that same body, in a glorified body in which he left. And that also teaches a bodily resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection as the Jehovah Witnesses teach. So the gold covering over the, over the wood is not a mistake. We might be tempted to think, well, okay, Israel is competing with those pagan temples. They've got this structure that God had to make, and somehow they've got to make it as ornate, as beautiful as what the pagans have, and say, our God is as good as your God, and so on, so on, so on. This is not a mistake. This is not doing things for decoration. Oh, here God is very clearly giving us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity and his humanity, and that is just a, a wonderful Uh, Two wonderful parts of who Jesus is and so very necessary to our salvation. It's the unity of God as God and man. and Just a fascinating study. Now, we don't have much more time, so uh, I do want to expand on the divinity of Christ. And I want to show you three aspects of his divinity, but rather start that now and continue next week. We'll just save all that for the next time. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about the divinity of Christ in that sermon. So boards and bars, uh, these are pictures from, from my youth that are fascinating to me and, and uh, just as much now as they were back then. So when we can look at the Word of God and we can pull out so many different aspects and see how that God declared His Son to Israel 1,500 years before He came into the world, that He showed so much to Israel before the Incarnation. I mean, this, this really makes the Bible... A peculiar and extraordinary book. No doubt the the uniqueness of the Bible's ability to do this and God's ability is why that one of the reasons that Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. There is nothing as great as God's word that reveals these things. I realize that on a Sunday afternoon, most of you are already born again believers. And perhaps I didn't tell you anything that you didn't already know. But if I start to preach things that nobody's heard before, then you're not seeing Christ. You're seeing me. And we don't want to do that. God forbid that we should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
are indeed thankful for your word and what we learn. We're thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and just remarkable pictures, remarkable ways that, that you work in salvation and what it took for you to, to bring salvation to this earth. Our minds simply cannot comprehend it. And what beautiful pictures that we see in the tabernacle. Lord, open up our hearts to the message of Jesus Christ, eternally God, and yet a man that we will see when we get into heaven. Lord, bless us tonight. Be with our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bbaptist.org.